Hi, it's Mark Stenson of Bioscience Bridge. I wanted to personally thank you for stopping by our podcast, The Patient Speak. Right now, we're preparing for a whole new season to be launched in September. In the meantime, I wanted to reissue some past interviews with healthcare executives, patient advocates, medical researchers, and other guests who share their insights on what it takes to accelerate the patient's journey. Hope you enjoy it. And now's the time to subscribe to The Patient Speak so you won't miss a new episode when we start our new season in September. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Patient Speak, healthcare innovations accelerating the patient journey. Featuring interviews with healthcare leaders, patient advocates, medical providers, and researchers. Here's your host, best-selling author, Mark Stinson. Welcome back, friends and colleagues, to our podcast, The Patients Speak, where we're combining the science and business innovation of healthcare with the patient voice to make sure we're accelerating the patient's journey from diagnosis to wellness. And today we have a guest to talk about the personal experiences sometimes and the motivation of the innovators and the startups to really keep the patient and their diagnosis, their wellness, their journey top of mind. My guest is Serbi Sarna. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for doing this podcast in general. I think keeping the patient front and center is so incredibly important for innovators in the space. Well, it's a day-to-day challenge. Serbi knows about this personally. She started her own company, started as an engineer in the field, but her personal experience led her to found and become the CEO of a company that then sold to a major medical device company. And now you're a group partner with the Y Combinator, consulting and mentoring other startups in the business of healthcare. And so I think I'd like to start there, Serbi. How do you keep the innovators, these startup companies, focused on the patient through all the regulatory trials and tribulations and other obstacles, finance issues? How do you keep them focused on the patient need? For me, it's ingrained in everything in my entire approach. And hopefully what comes through to them is that it should be ingrained in theirs And so it's actually what makes you want to go through the FDA approval and want to go through the period of discovery and failing again and again on the bench or in the clinic, or want to push through the next strife within the team is you go back and you remember that there are patients waiting. And that's something we used to say at our company. Whenever we thought, ah, we're in the office at 10 p.m., And do we really need to get this FDA filing in tomorrow? Can we just push it a day or two? The thing that we all told ourselves, and I have emails documenting this, is patients are waiting. Patients are waiting. So strong. And you spoke to a gathering of the startups and founders uh, with the Y Combinator at a summit at the year's end and really told them that with all the things that they have to do, the reason we're here is the patients. Yeah, absolutely. At the end of the day, that's the motivating factor. And I think that there is a natural gravitation or selection to this field by people who want to make a difference in their day-to-day. In terms of the work they do every day, they want to know it's greater than the paycheck they're about to get or the work in itself on that single day, that you're working towards making a real impact. And the people that you are impacting the most, sometimes it's patients. Sometimes it's people before they become patients. It's the preventative medicine. And 
which I don't always think gets enough attention, but it's either patients or potential patients. It's people who have families. It really comes down to that. And to you, this is not just a philosophy. It's not something you just read in a business book. This is your own personal experience. And you just published a book about this called Without a Doubt, How to Go from Underrated to Unbeatable, just out from Simon & Schuster. A terrific book that's really a personal story, but it does allude to this patient voice because it was driven from your own patient experience. Maybe you could back up and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's. I would say that entrepreneurship and health innovation found me. I remember the day very clearly. I was only in high school. I was about 13. I was writing a paper in my bedroom, just any other high school afternoon, when all of a sudden I felt a pain so sharp in my side that I could barely make it to the kitchen where my mom was at the side time and say my side hurts before blacking out. And the next thing I remember is waking up in the hospital, right? And of course there was no way for me to know it then, but it was going to be the first of many trips. That night I almost had emergency surgery done for appendicitis. Luckily the surgeon noticed last minute that wasn't what was ailing me. And within a week or so, we knew that I was suffering from complex ovarian cysts, but what they didn't know for months and months is whether or not that cyst was cancerous. Because that cyst was half fluid, half solid, if you're in a situation where the mass is completely solid, definitely begs further investigation. If it's completely fluid, it could be a benign cyst that occurs on a monthly basis. Because mine was in the middle, it caused a lot of confusion. And the choices we were faced with were to either do this invasive exploratory surgery, where if there was cancer, would risk spreading the cancer, or to wait and see what happened. And we chose the path to wait, and the cyst dissolved on its own. But going through that patient journey and doing all of this reading and support with these brilliant teachers I had at the time... It just made me realize that women's health isn't where it should be from the lack of therapeutic options that we had from the unnecessarily long diagnostic time. And so that's really what set me on my journey. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the patient is always central. Thanks for that perspective. And thanks for this conversation. I really appreciate you bringing both the business and the patient voice to bear. My guest has been Serbi Sarna. She is a group director at the Y Combinator and the author of a book just out called Without a Doubt, How to Go from Underrated to Unbeatable from Simon & Schuster. It's my pleasure. And I wrote the book for others who feel underrated. They feel a little bit on the outside, but they do really want to have that impact. And I hope people have a chance to read it. And I hope that it instills a little bit of a belief that you can absolutely overcome doubt from others, a self-doubt as well. And I sort of chronicle every stage that I can from being a patient to landing on the exact idea, clinical trials, regulatory approval, fundraising, team building, and all of that. So I hope people have a chance to grab a copy. And, and Mark, this has been a wonderful conversation. And again, I think this topic of being patient-centric is just so important. So thank you so much for, for having me today. My guest today has some important insights on listening and a whole different sense that we're using for listening. I'm so happy to be talking to Sushma Subramanian. Sushma, welcome to the program. It's just so great to be talking to you. 
And Sushma is not only a science and healthcare journalist, she's also a professor of journalism at the University of Mary Washington. Her work has been featured in Slate, Atlantic, Elle, Scientific American, Discover, and many others. And she's the author of a book called How to Feel the Science and Meaning of Touch. I think we just start right off with that notion that touch can be a listening tool, especially in patient-physician interaction. What's been your research in that area? There have been a lot of changes in the just the historical course of medicine that has made touch a less valued sense over time. So historians will often talk about this sensory shift that took place in the 16th and 17th centuries. So in terms of medicine, what happened is you had these early medical practitioners who cared so much about the senses. And for them, touch was the most important one. Like in ancient Greece, there were these key tactile properties of the body, heat, cold, wetness, and dryness, and keeping them in balance was what helped to keep people healthy. And with these changes, which in some ways improvements to having more kind of objective science deciding how to treat patients, scan the body from a distance and observe a patient that way and use touch less. And you've seen that over time, medicine has changed to become even less tactile since then. We're not just like scanning with the eyes, but actually using more technology, body scans, really increasing that distance from patients. I think what's missing is that feeling that patients had of this close relationship with the doctor that was so comforting in the past. So even as there have been improvements, there's something missing in the patient experience because of this trend. Yes. And it's so interesting you use this word comforting and reassuring and that sort of closeness. We talk to so many patients and patient advocates on this program, and often they talk about the conflict that even the doctor feels about having to fill out the forms and do the medical records right in front of them, that often they don't even feel eye contact, let alone physical touch. How do you think that affects communications, thinking now of touch as a communication tool? I think that is probably behind the reason that many patients say that they don't feel seen by their doctor, don't feel seen, don't feel heard, because these appointments do end up being rushed. The actual relationship that forms between the doctor and the patient becomes more perfunctory in that way. And so what's happened is that because touch isn't so central to the doctor-patient relationship, people do develop, I guess, a, a closer relationship with their nurses, for instance, because we outsourced the tactile part of it to nurses. But I mean, in mainstream medicine, even the way that nurses touch patients is often perfunctory. So even outside of that, we see the growth of this of the wellness industry. That, in many ways, has helped people find that feeling of care and comfort that you're talking about that maybe they don't experience in traditional medicine. But the problem with that, of course, is that who has access? Not everybody. Not everybody, and not, yes. Not only is it a function of money, right, whether you can access the wellness industry, but also a lot of cultural assumptions of, you know, who would go to, say, a wellness retreat, right? Probably that's more acceptable for women culturally and I think for marginalized groups, that's all. It is, it's also less 
accessible to them. And you're raising an interesting point about maybe some of these complementary treatments, osteopathic adjustments, chiropractic, acupuncture, things like this that do have a physical touch component. Right. We do see that as touch has become more sidelined in traditional medicine, we have these specialties in which touch is more important popping up. But then you have to question, what if we just incorporated more sensory practices in traditional medicine? Would there be that necessary separation then? And I just look at the a hospital room, right? It's absolutely not a tactile place. It's totally mm-hmm. sterile. There's no color, right? And I don't think there's much attention paid to comfort of the surroundings. So what if there was a way in just small ways to incorporate that kind of sensory thinking to Western medicine environment? In a recent episode, we talked with Dr. V, who is a medical director at Cedars-Sinai, but one of his interests was palliative care. And in that area, he did find a comforting holding of the hand, a hand on the shoulder, something like that did have very powerful effects. And you're talking about incorporating some of these simple ways into the day-to-day interaction. I think so. I think it's especially important in cases where there is no kind of quick fix. So palliative care, you can obviously see why those patients would want to be comforted above all, because the treatment is less possible for them. But I'm also thinking many other chronic health conditions where perhaps living with the problem is part of just a patient's reality. Incorporating more of that kind of sensory thinking into their treatment would be helpful. So I'm thinking like chronic pain patients, right, would benefit from that. Very good. My guest has been Sushma Subramanian, and she's the author of How to Feel, The Science and Meaning of touch. Sushma, as we close, before we wrap up, I wondered if you could bring this practical thinking to us now. And we mentioned that there might be ways to incorporate more touch in our day-to-day lives, but specifically to this podcast, the patient and physician communication. What are some of those thoughts that whether it be practice or whether it be clinical trial protocols, how do you think we could incorporate the ideas of touch more? I think that when we're talking about the doctor-patient interaction, we're not just talking about real physical touch, but also just this metaphorical feeling of touch, just having that relationship form with the doctor. So I think just the physical examination is a big part of that. And I think that A lot of doctors are not doing that as much or using scans instead, but not only is it important to check a patient's vital signs, right? But also I think the physical examination is a great way to develop that caring and also connected relationship, right? With a doctor. I just think that it's the small ways that you can think about the sensory experience of the patient. We're combining the business and science innovation of healthcare with the patient voice to learn how we can accelerate the patient's journey. Today, we have a guest who really brings both of those perspectives to bear, both as a doctor of physical therapy and a Yale MBA consulting with healthcare groups about how they can overcome health inequities. My guest is Urvashi Bhatnagar. Urvashi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Yes. And Urvashi is also co-author of a new book, The Sustainability Scorecard. 
Vashi, maybe we'll start with the basic idea of your focus on sustainability combined with patient care, how sustainability really does impact patient outcomes. Absolutely, 100%. There's an age-old saying, if you don't track it, you can't measure it. And I say, if you're not measuring it, you never intend to change it. And one of the biggest things that we see with sustainability that is least talked about in mainstream conversation, especially in health systems with providers, is the impact of climate change on human health. Now, there's a lot of published data on uh particulate matter and pollution and various other man-made inputs into the environment that affect human health and wellness. And all of these are factors that are ending and furthering climate change effects. So essentially what's happening is that climate change is causing real health impacts that is sending our patients to the ER every single day. And we come back with diagnosis of asthma and what have you cancer in some cases. And at the end of the day, it is because of what we are exposed to in our natural environment. So I like to say that every firm is a healthcare firm. Every firm in our economy has externalities that eventually at the end of the day affect consumers and the people that work in these organizations' health and wellness. And so when you look at impact, when firms measure impact, we need to work and move firmly to a world where we are using the triple bottom line most effectively and saying we measure our impact on our financial profits, but we also look at the social, the human health and wellness, and the environmental because they are all interconnected and we can't uncouple them. And oftentimes we talk about the consumer using their voice to vote on which companies they want to deal with, whether that be as a consumer and buying their packaged goods or what services, what have you, or investing in those companies. Or in, and then the third way would be, what companies do I want to work with? So drilling down on the patient's voice or the patient as a consumer, how do you feel they can vote on their health? I see it today now more than we did before, but thankfully due to social media and there are many, many of impacts of social media, but one of the biggest is that consumers have never had as big a voice as they did do today and now. And so we all have the same platform to spread awareness, to talk about what we want to see in our goods and processes in the economy, but especially as it relates to patients. Now, when you think about going to your doctor or you're thinking about even clinical trials, the whole spectrum, every care provider along the way is a great person to discuss your exposure with. And the more providers start hearing that, the more they're going to pressure their organizations and take leadership roles in their organizations to say, why aren't we tracking publicly available data on groundwater and the risk that is posed to our patients due to leaching or whatever there may be a high concentration of in that zip code or that area? Or is there a high degree of particulate matter? Why do we such a high, see such a high mortality rate of a certain disease in a certain area? Patients play a very big role in advocating for themselves, but also in representing their communities and asking important questions of their providers, because that 
providers. And I had an article come out recently with just an incredible physician leader. His name is Dr. Jeff Thompson, who was the ex-CEO of Gunderson Health Systems. And he wrote a wonderful book called Lead True. And he talks about how physicians are the right people to take a leading voice in climate change, because we are driven by an inherent desire to serve. And so if I know, or if the community knows that a certain externality exists and it's affecting all of our patients, we've taken the oath to uncover, in- investigate, and then develop a solution around it. And so the first step starts with patients advocating for themselves, also providers listening, providers paying attention, investigating, and then taking a leading role in developing solutions. So interesting. So provocative, really, to think about it in these terms. Listeners, my guest is Urvashi Batnagar. Her book is Sustainability Scorecard. I'll have all the links and connections to Urvashi in the show notes. Urvashi, just can't thank you enough for the great conversation. I really appreciate your insights. Thank you so much. Great to be here. And we're so glad today to have as our guest, Dr. Ann Hester. Thank you for having me. And your book, Patient Empowerment 101, even the 101 has this elemental, these are the main things you need to know about empowering patients and how they can speak more for themselves and get more from their healthcare interactions. And what was it about your own patient interactions that really motivated you to write a book called Patient Empowerment? Way back in medical school, I started seeing this tremendous void between the way doctors think and the way patients think. And the doctors will tell patients what to do and the patients will often say, okay, and go home and they may or may not do it. Patients are readmitted to the hospital over and over. Patients have unnecessary suffering and sometimes death as a result of many things, but one being the lack of communication and understanding between doctors and patients. And I just felt it was very important for patients to understand what they could do differently. Patients have tremendous power over their own health care. And now they're at a point that they want to claim that power. They want to be at the center of their healthcare team, which is where they rightfully deserve to be. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned this sort of deferential engagement with physicians that yes. patients just take what they say. And you even underscored to me that you'd rather be called Anne, a friend that happens to be a doctor. How does that relationship between patient and physician change if the patient feels more on equal footing? Well, what I say is different doctors are different. Some doctors are okay with being called by the first name, but the vast majority of physicians typically are not. And they want to keep the clear boundaries. They don't want to, unless they really know the patient well, to really be perceived as someone like their next door neighbor, because they want it to be clear. This is the information I'm giving you based on my background. And so there is going to be a delineation in probably most situations. Um, And so it is on a case-by-case basis. And typically, most of my patients did call me um, Dr. Hester. And that's certainly, uh, it's being respectful, it's being appropriate. And doctors will sometimes say, hey, call me by my first name. And if they offer that, certainly by all means, um, patients should do so. Mm -hmm. And now you're moving into more of a medical administration, sort of an uh, overview, uh, more administration. Uh, How does that viewpoint 
give you a wider perspective on patient empowerment and more of in the system of healthcare and not just the one-on-one patient-doctor interaction? Well, the administrative aspect is um, one part, but I think the, the emphasis really is on the tremendous amount of time I actually spent at the bedside. I was a primary care doctor um, for years, and then I became a hospital specialist. We were called hospitalist, a hospital specialist for about 15 years. And I just saw so many situations in which the patients, they just, they really don't know. We go to medical school. We spend a ton of time in medical school and residency training and staying up all night, taking care of patients. We really want to be in the bed. So we have gotten to the point that sometimes we eat, sleep, and drink medicine. Patients don't have a patient school. They don't know what we're looking for frequently. They don't understand what specifically the doctor wants to know and what a doctor doesn't want to know. One time I asked a patient a yes or no question, just a timer, because she was a a rather circuitous um, sort of lady. It took her 10 minutes to answer a yes or no question. And I think that's profound because that speaks to the fact that when patients aren't prepared, they don't know how to think through their problems. They can spend a lot of time giving a very roundabout answer. And that time um, is time on the clock. It's time that's ticking. Doctors frequently don't have a tremendous amount of time face to face with the patients. Frequently, they spend more time I'm doing the administrative work, such as documenting in electronic health records, returning phone calls and so forth. And they actually spend with the patient face to face. So patients can be very prepared when they walk into the office so they can give a quote unquote elevator speech. Tell the doctor in 60, 90 seconds what's been going on, how severe it is, how long it's been going on, the modifying factors and so forth. Then that patient can frequently give the doctor a very short list of potential diagnoses. They taught us in medical school that most of the diagnosis is in the history. It's not in the lab test. And I thought the professor, you know, really didn't know what he was talking about, but it's so true. If you can give the doctor appropriate information, the doctor's not going to have to order a lot of tests and procedures to get to the bottom line, because you really already narrowed it down for him. And that's the piece that patients are missing. There is no patient school. They don't understand how to put this together. And that is extremely concerning, particularly in the face of this looming physician shortage of over 100,000 physicians by, you know, uh, in the next 12 years or so. And so patients really do need to be better equipped to make the best use of every moment they have with their physicians. Listeners, my guest has been Dr. Ann Hester. She's the author of a great book called Patient Empowerment 101 with a wonderful subtitle, More Than a Book, It's an Adventure. And it's great to think of the patient journey as an adventure. It's certainly a different point of view. Thanks for being on our program, Ann. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was great. And we'll put all the links to uh, Ann and the book in our show notes so you can reference those. And listeners, do come back again for our next episode. We'll be continuing our conversations with healthcare leaders in many fields at the companies, uh, in the provider networks, and patient advocacy groups themselves to learn better what we can find out when we really listen to the patients speak. 
I'm Mark Stenson, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Patient Speak, Healthcare Innovations Accelerating the Patient Journey with Mark Stinson. You can listen to our show on any of your favorite podcast apps. Subscribe now so you won't miss an episode of The Patients Speak. This podcast is produced by BSB Media. We also host another show you might enjoy, Unlocking Your World of Creativity. It's a top-rated podcast featuring interviews with creators around the world. We help you gain the confidence and connections to launch your creative work out into the world. Look for Unlocking Your World of Creativity on your favorite podcast app.